Homage to Catalonia, Chapter 2 Barbastro, though a long way from the front line, looked bleak and chipped. Swarms of militiamen in shabby uniforms wandered up and down the streets, trying to keep warm. On a ruinous wall, I came upon a poster dating from the previous year and announcing that, quote, six handsome bulls would be killed in the arena on such and such a date. How forlorn its faded colors looked. Where were the handsome bulls and the handsome bullfighters now? It appeared that even in Barcelona there were hardly any bullfights nowadays. For some reason, all the best matadors were fascists. They sent my company by lorry to Siedamo, then westward to Alcubierre, which was just behind the line fronting Zaragoza. Siatamo had been fought over three times before the anarchists finally took it in, November, in October, and parts of it were smashed to pieces by shell fire and most of the houses pockmarked by rifle bullets. We were 1,500 feet above sea level now. It was beastly cold, with the dense mist that came swirling up from nowhere. Between Siatamo and Alcubierre, the lorry driver lost his way. This was one of the regular features of the war, and we were wandering for hours in the mist. It was late at night when we reached El Cubiere. Someone shepherded us through morasses of mud into a mule stable, where we dug ourselves down into the shaft and promptly fell asleep. Chaff is not bad to sleep on in when it is clean, not so good as hay, but better than straw. It was only in the morning light that I discovered that the chaff was full of bread crusts, torn newspapers, bones, dead rats, and jagged milk tins. We were near the front line now, near enough to smell the characteristic smell of war. In my experience, the smell of excrement and decaying food. El Cubiere had never been shelled and was in a better state than most of the villages immediately behind the line. Yet I believe that even in peacetime, you could not travel in that part of Spain without being struck by the peculiar squalid misery of the Aragonese villages. They are built like fortresses, a mass of mean little houses of mud and stone huddling round the church, and even in spring you see hardly a flower anywhere. The houses have no gardens, only backyards where ragged fowls skate over the beds of mule dung. It was vile weather, with alternate mist and rain. The narrow earth roads had been churned into a sea of mud in places two feet deep, through which the lorries struggled with racing wheels, and the peasants led their clumsy carts, which were pulled by strings of mules, sometimes as many as six in a string, always pulling tandem. The constant come-and-go of troops had reduced the village to a state of unspeakable filth, it did not possess, and never had possessed, such a thing as a lavatory or a drain of any kind, and there was not a square yard anywhere where you could tread without watching your step. The church had long been used as a latrine. So had all the fields for a quarter of a mile round. I never think of my first two months at war without thinking of wintry stubble fields whose edges are crusted with dung. Two days passed, and no rifles were issued to us. When you had been to the Comité de Guerra and inspected the row of holes in the wall, holes made by rifle volleys, 
various fascists having been executed there, you had seen all the sites that Alcubierre contains. Up in the front line, things were obviously quiet. Very few wounded were coming in. The chief excitement was the arrival of fascist deserters, who were brought under guard from the front line. Many of the troops opposite us on this part of the line were not fascists at all, merely wretched conscripts who had been doing their military service at the time when war broke out, and were only too anxious to escape. Occasionally, small batches of them took the risk of slipping across to our lines. No doubt, more would have done so if their relatives had not been in fascist territory. These deserters were the first, quote, real fascists I had ever seen. It struck me that they were indistinguishable from ourselves, except that they wore khaki overalls. They were always ravenously hungry when they arrived, natural enough after a day or two of dodging about in no man's land, but it was always triumphantly pointed as, to as proof that the fascist troops were starving. I watched one of them being, being fed in a peasant's house. It was somehow rather a pitiful sight. A tall boy of twenty, deeply windburnt, with his clothes in rags, crouched over the fire, shoveling a pain, panicking full of stew into himself at desperate speed, and all the while his eyes flitted nervously round the ring of militiamen who stood watching him. I think he still half believed that we were bloodthirsty reds, and were going to shoot him as soon as he had finished his meal. The armed men, who guarded him, kept stroking his, stroking his shoulder and making reassuring noises. On one memorial day, fifteen deserters arrived in a single batch. They were led through the village in triumph with a man riding in front of them on a white horse. I managed to take a rather blurry photograph, which was stolen from me later. On our third morning in El Cubieri, the rifles arrived. A sergeant with a coarse, dark yellow face was handing them out in the mule stable. I got a shock of dismay when I saw the thing they gave me. It was a German Mauser, dated 1896, more than 40 years old. It was rusty, the bolt was stiff, the wooden barrel guard was split. One glance down the muzzle showed that it was corroded and past praying for. Most of the rifles were equally bad, some of them even worse, and no attempt was made to give the best weapons to the men who knew how to use them. The best rifle of the lot, only ten years old, was given to a half-witted little beast of fifteen, known to everyone as the Maricun, Nancy Boy, Maricun. The sergeant gave us five minutes, quote, instruction, which in consisted in explaining how you loaded a rifle and how you took the bolt to pieces. Many of the militiamen had never had a gun in their hands before, and very few, I imagine, knew what the sights were for. Cartridges were handed out, fifty to a man, and then the ranks were formed, and we strapped our kits on our backs and set out for the front line, about three miles away. The Centuria, eighty men and several dogs, wound raggedly up the road. Every militia column had at least one dog attached to it as a mascot. One wretched brute that marched along, that marched with us, had had P.O.U.M. branded on it in huge letters, and slunk along as though conscious that there was something wrong with its appearance. At the head of the column, beside the red flag, George 
that Jorge's cop, the stout Belgian commandante, was riding a black horse. A little way ahead, a youth from the brigand like militia cavalry pranced to and fro, galloping up every piece of rising ground and posing himself in picturesque attitudes at the summit. The splendid horses of the Spanish cavalry had been captured in large numbers during the revolution and handed over to the militia, who, of course, were busy riding them to death. The road wound between yellow and fertile fields, untouched since last year's harvest. Ahead of us was the low sierra that lies between Alcubierre and Zaragoza. We were getting near the front line now, near the bombs, the machine guns, and the mud. In secret, I was frightened. I knew the line was quiet at present, but unlike most of the men about me, I was old enough to remember the Great War, though not old enough to have fought in it. War to me meant roaring projectiles and skipping shards of steel. Above all, it meant mud, lice, hunger, and cold. It is curious, but I dreaded the cold much more than I dreaded the enemy. The thought of it had been haunting me all the while I was in Barcelona. I had even lain awake at nights thinking of the cold in the trenches, in the trenches the stantus and the grisly dawns, the long hours on sentry, go of the frosted rifle, the icy mud that would slop over my boot tops. I admit, too, that I felt a kind of horror as I looked at the people I was marching among. You cannot possibly conceive what a rabble we looked. We straggled around with far less cohesion than a flock of sheep. Before we had gone two miles, the rear of the column was out of sight and quite half of the so-called men were children, but I mean literally children, of sixteen years old at the very most. Yet they were all happy, happy and excited at the prospect of getting to the front at last. As we neared the line, the boys round the red flag in front began to utter shouts of Visca P-O-U-M-A Fascistas Maricones and so forth, shouts which were meant to be warlike and menacing, but which, from these childish throats, sounded as pathetic as the cries of kittens. It seemed dreadful that the defenders of the Republic should be this mob of ragged children carrying worn-out rifles which they did not know how to use. I remember wondering what would, even ha- what would happen if a fascist airplane passed our way, whether the airman would even bother to dive down and give us a burst from his machine gun. Surely, even from the air, he could see that we were not real soldiers. As the road struck into the Sierra, we branched off to the right and climbed a narrow mule track that wound round the mountainside. The hills in that part of Spain are of a queer formation, horseshoe-shaped, with flattish tops and very steep sides running down into immense ravines. On the higher slopes, nothing grows except stunted shrubs and heath, which the white, with the white bones of the limestone sticking out everywhere. The front line here was not a continuous line of trenches, which would have been impossible in such a mountainous country. It was simply a chain of fortified posts, always known as positions, perched on each hilltop. In the distance, you could see our position at the crown of the horseshoe, 
a ragged barricade of sandbags, a red flag fluttering, the smoke of dugout fires. A little nearer, and you could smell a sickening Swedish stink that lived in my nostrils for weeks afterwards. Into the cleft immediately behind the position, all the refuse of months had been tipped. A deep, festering bed of bread crusts, excrement, and rusty tins. The company we were relieving were getting their kits together. They had been three months in the line. Their uniforms were caked with mud, their boots feeling, falling to pieces, their faces mostly bearded. The captain commanding the position, Levinsky by name, but known to everyone as Benjamin, and by birth a Polish Jew, but speaking French as his native language, crawled out of his dugout and greeted us. He was a short youth of about twenty-five, with stiff black hair and a pale, eager face, which, at this period of the war, was always very dirty. A few spray bullets were cracking high overhead. The position was a semicircular enclosure about fifty yards across, with a parapet that was partly sandbags and partly lumps of limestone. There were thirty or forty dugouts running into the ground like rat holes. Williams, myself, and Williams' Spanish brother-in-law made a swift dive for the nearest unoccupied dugout that looked habitable. Somewhere in front, an occasional rifle banged, making queer rolling echoes against among the rolling, stony hills. We had just dumped our kits and were crawling out of the dugout when there was another bang, and one of the children of our company rushed back from the parapet with his face pouring blood. He had fired his rifle and had somehow managed to blow out the bolt. His scalp was torn to ribbons by the splinters of the burst cartridge case. It was our first casualty and, characteristically, self-inflicted. In the afternoon, we did our first guard, and Benjamin showed us around the position. In front of the parapet, there ran a system of narrow trenches hewn out of the rock and with extremely primitive loopholes made of piles of limestone. There were twelve sentries placed at various points in the trench and behind the inner parapet. In front of the trench was the barbed wire, and then the hillside slid down into a seemingly bottomless ravine. Opposite were naked hills, in places mere cliffs of rock, all gray and wintry, with no life anywhere, not even a bird. I peered cautiously through a, through a loophole, trying to find the fascist trench. Where are the enemy? Benjamin waved his hand expansively. Over there! Benjamin spoke English, terrible English. But where? According to my ideas of trench warfare, the fascists would be fifty or a hundred yards away. I could see nothing. Seemingly their trenches were very well concealed. Then, with a shock of dismay, I saw where Benjamin was pointing, on the opposite hilltop, beyond the ravine, seven hundred meters away, at the very least, the tiny outline of a great of a parapet and a red and yellow flag, the fascist position. I was indescribably disappointed. We were nowhere near them. At that range, our rifles were completely useless. But at this moment, there was a shout of excitement. Two fascists, grayish figurines in the distance, were scrambling up the naked hillside opposite. Benjamin grabbed the nearest man's rifle, took aim, and pulled the trigger. Click. 
I did a dud cartridge. I thought it's a bad omen. The new sentries were no longer were no sooner in the trench than they began firing a terrific fusillade at nothing in particular. I could see the fascists, tiny as ants, dodging to and fro behind their parapet, and sometimes a black dot, which was ahead, would pause for a moment, impudently exposed. It was obvious, no use firing. It was obviously no use firing. But presently, the sentry on my left, leaving his post in the typical Spanish fashion, sidled up to me and began urging me to fire. I tried to explain that at that range and with these rifles you could not hit a man except by accident, but he was only a child and he kept motioning with his rifle towards one of the dots, grinning as eagerly as a dog that expects a pebble to be thrown. Finally, I put my sights up to 700 and let fly. The dot disappeared. I hope it went near enough to, to make him jump. It was the first time in my life that I had fired a gun at a human being. Now that I had seen the front, I was profoundly disgusted. They called this war? And we were hardly even in touch with the enemy. I made no attempt to keep my head below the level of the trench. A little while later, however, a bullet shot past my ear with a vicious crack and banged into the parados behind. Alas, I ducked. All my life I had sworn that I would not duck the first time a bullet passed over me, but the moment appears movement appears to be instinctive, and almost everybody does it at least once. End of chapter 2 Homage to Catalonia